I think as human beings, we have perhaps a streak of vicarious voyeurism that we see and, uh, and enjoy exhibitions of controlled violence. In April 2022, Tyson Fury retained his heavyweight title, beating Dillian White in the fifth round in front of a packed out Wembley Stadium. Frank Warren paid £31 million, the highest successful purse bid in boxing history, to promote the fight. The capacity of 100,000 at Wembley Stadium made this the biggest post-war boxing attendance in history. The appetite for boxing at the highest level is as much as it's ever been. And look, boxing has always been in the spotlight. We know about the heavyweight division, people like Joe Louis and legends like Jake LaMotta, popularised by Martin Scorsese and Raging Bull, are just two examples. In the 1990s, the UK had amazing boxers who caught the imagination of the public in their fights with each other. Names like Nigel Benn, Chris Eubank, Steve Collins and Michael Watson became household names. I remember hearing about the so-called four kings of the 80s, Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Tommy the Hitman Hearns. What about Mike Tyson? Also Manny Pacquiao, Oscar De La Hoya and of course the richest boxer of all time, Floyd Mayweather. And we've got this far without mentioning the real golden boy himself, who elevated the promotion of the sport to the next level, Muhammad Ali. Organised violence. We as humans have always been obsessed with violence. Why is that? We love seeing people getting hurt and always have. We like fighting, right? And, and so we'll watch it for free. We'll watch it on YouTube. Even these guys aren't getting paid. We will watch backyard fighting. We watch street fights, right? There's something about us who, who we love violence. So when we started thinking about this podcast, we set out to make a history of boxing, didn't we? We did, but we realised as we dug deeper that it was much more complex than that. And looking at boxing in detail raises so many questions about the commodification of the human body for sport and about the exploitation of men and women for money. Over the next 10 episodes, Physical Capital will look at the origins of boxing and how it's been used for political gain, financial gain, as a source of national pride, a vehicle for propaganda and an expression of masculinity. We'll also look at boxing through the prism of race and sexuality and how it's been a way out of criminality and poverty. I'm James Deacon. And I'm Renee Richardson. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to Physical, Physical Capital. Capital. So I've been thinking, and I think the best place to start this series is to find out why you wanted to make this podcast in the first place. Okay, so I make a podcast called Human Resources, which is on this feed if you're a listener. <laughs> and... Basically, we while we were doing research, our researcher Arissa found out about boxing around the slave plantations and how um, slave owners would pit fighters against each other. So that made me think, what else is related to boxing from slavery? But also, like, how the hell did boxing get from that to this? How did we get here? I was just interested. What we started off setting out to make isn't what we've ended up doing quite, is it? What we started out was a history of boxing and has ended up being more of an examination of what boxing represents in society. At this point, it's important to say that we're not experts. We're going on the journey with you. I'm definitely not an expert. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm with you guys. I'm with the listeners. We're trying to get a better understanding of the sweet science as it's known. So we've spoken to journalists, former fighters, historians, and especially academics, like Byron Nakamura, Professor of History at Southern Connecticut State University. 
This is in New Haven, Connecticut in the uh, United States. Um, my specialty is Greco-Roman history, and I have a particular interest in the, uh, the ancient blood sports. We can trace boxing back to the earliest civilizations. Boxing was prevalent in Greek mythology, and etchings found on the walls in ancient Mesopotamia. That's modern-day Iraq for the rest of us, James. You're right. Anyway, those etchings show unarmed fighters using their fists. We started with a quick look at where boxing is now, but let's go right back, all the way back, and look at the origins of the sport. We asked the question, why do we enjoy this violence? Byron Nakamura again. That's a very good question. I think as human beings, we have perhaps a streak of vicarious voyeurism. We see and, uh, and enjoy exhibitions of controlled violence. This is a way where we can see and uh, experience vicariously these um, you know, almost life and death situations, but in a controlled way. And the evidence is there. If I give you some stats, Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao back in 2015 generated over $410 million from its 4.6 million pay-per-view streams alone. And in May 2022, Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano, billed as the biggest fight in women's boxing, drew 1.5 million viewers from over 170 different territories across the world. A new record for a female boxing match. We watch fights on YouTube, watch backyard fighting, bare knuckle fights. We've all stopped and rubbernecked as a fight broke out in a bar or a street or slowed the car down. Hollywood has had bath brawls in movies since the beginning of cinema. We love it and always have, ever since the Greco-Roman era. Boxers hold a kind of mythical place in society now. They're like the ultimate warriors. But we want to know whether that's always been the case. How has the status of a boxer developed over history? A great many people who promoted these boxers within the city-state were wealthy um, civic elites, politicians and notable members of a Greek city-state society. And they would basically, out of their own pocket, finance these games. And they would be able to, to show their sort of ability to, uh, to show off their wealth through con conspicuous uh, expenditure you know, for the entire community. So in, in, in this case, you know, the games and these individual athletes like these boxers were used by um, these civic elites, not necessarily to produce financial capital, but rather political or social capital that would in increase you know, the individual's prestige or a political status. And I guess that's not dissimilar to the promoters of today, right? Eddie Hearn at Matrium Promotions, Bob Arum, the top-ranked promoter and one of the biggest in the US. Just like the arts, these boxers seem to have patrons. And it wasn't just for the good of the game, as it were. It was often to gain political capital for themselves. But unlike modern boxing that uses promoters, ancient boxing, on the other hand, was state-sponsored, which is very important to how the sport developed. I'll let Byron explain. A lot of these uh, wealthy individuals were politicians, and they would be able to sort of demonstrate their, it's a way of, you know, putting your name out there and to also sort of outdo others, to present to the, uh, the community that, yes, I have all this wealth and power, and I, and I will spend it on you. I mentioned earlier the podcast that I make, Human Resources, and how we found links between slavery, well, the plantations and boxing, and how the owners would exploit the slaves or fighters to generate wealth for themselves. Now with sports people, sometimes you hear about the frustrations and the restrictive deals and you hear about them feeling exploited. Sometimes they even say they feel like slaves themselves. 
Boxing back then used fighters as a commodity. Is this still the case? Has it changed much from then to now? It's a, it's a rather complicated question. In the Greek world, the participants were free citizens. Um, they were not slaves um, whatsoever. But they were, you know, they were exploited by their, you know, by just more wealthier, more powerful members of, uh, of the Greek city-state society, and that they were used to, you know, aggrandize the, uh, the sponsor of these particular games. Or in some cases, the, the entire city-state would, uh, would, would sponsor these games as well. Um, we don't have a situation um, where, like for example in ancient Rome, where the gladiators of course were slaves. Um, these boxers were part of sort of these Greek games that were held separate from um, sort of the games under, uh, under the Romans. I guess the commodification would be instead of the demonstration of power and prestige for the individual uh, member of the city-state who sponsored these games, it would transfer to the Roman Empire, to the Roman authorities um, and the Roman emperors as well. So they would sort of become sort of the center point of the um, prestige that, be, that can be granted by putting on these games. But really, how much choice did you have as a fighter at the time? From the sounds of things, not a lot. And if your patron is controlling you... Or do we just mean slavery? We know that most gladiators were slaves, prisoners of war and criminals, but anyone could join if they wanted to. And look, as we see in life, and as we'll certainly see time and time again in this series, no one does anything for nothing. Why do people want to buy, sell, bet on, and invest money into human beings for entertainment purposes? I'm wondering what the financial incentive would be. Would the promoters of these fights see the return on their money? Not in the traditional sense. These weren't necessarily revenue generators in the, in the modern sense. Rather, it's sort of intangible revenue, popularity, status, prestige. And these were, of course, bought with real, you know, financial resources, but the end result wasn't necessarily, you know, sort of cash driven. But I will say there is a strong connection with the sponsorship of these ancient Greek games and its impact on uh, the community. Many Romans saw gladiators as a good private investment. Benefactors would set up schools and got their money back after just two shows. So the potential to generate large amounts of money was there, just like today. Boxing is so captivating, both the violence and the spectacle. But why has boxing always caught the public's imagination? What is it about the performance, the business, that's kept us so engaged throughout history? One can certainly explain it, the, the popularity of boxing um, in, in terms of uh, the availability. I mean, with streaming platforms and with uh, modern uh, media centers, it's readily accessible. I mean, it, it exists on, you know, various scales. You know, something from sort of large-scale worldwide uh, exhibitions put on by uh, modern promoters like Eddie Hearn's Matchroom, for example, in the UK, or Bob Arum's Top Rank Company. It's an extensive platform that's a, that's a great revenue generator. I mean, to, to, to sort of tie back to the ancient world, I think it goes back to this sort of voyeuristic tendency that we have as human beings, that, you know, that we can experience sort of a life or near life and death struggle, um, but it's controlled, right? That the, that the violence isn't necessarily, you know, transmitted to the, uh, to the audience, although in some cases it could but it's a way of sort of having sort of a, a control over that, that very sort of base nature of the struggle of competition, one-on-one -on -one competition 
nothing but one's bare hands. So we talk about being bloodthirsty and loving the spectacle, and we've all seen the gladiator with knives, swords and shields. It was really brutal. There were no time limits to fights. You carried on until your opponent was dead, basically. The average age of a gladiator was 22, half the life expectancy of the average citizen. Eventually, even this was too much for a bloodthirsty population, with protests at the end of the century. And so by comparison, a fist fight was fine. Still the violence, but less of the death. And here we start to see a shift, removing the weapons and becoming boxing as we recognise it now. Here's Byron again to tell us about one of the first famous boxers. The most famous boxer, I think, in the Greek world was a, a boxer named Theogenes of Thasos. He was from the island of Thasos. I mean, he lived around 480 BCE. He was a two-time Olympic victor in the sport of boxing, but his overall record included 1,300 uh, matches that he won. Um, and this, this gentleman had a um, rose in his community as a sort of almost a cult figure where, you know, he, he was given a, a statue and, uh, and was seen as, a, you know, almost a, a divine sort of hero, um, that there was a, a cult of this, uh, of this boxer that the community sort of uh, worshipped um, in a lot of cases uh, as a, you know, as a sort of almost demigod of some kind. Another example, uh, a very interesting boxer, um, was a fellow named Melicomus of Caria, a Greek boxer during the second century CE. And he was known for his defense and that he was seen as virtually unhittable and that he would win his matches by outlasting the other boxer. And never in his career was he ever struck and he would never have the opportunity to strike his opponent. He would just simply dodge the, uh, the blows and the other, his, uh, his opponents would just collapse out of exhaustion. And so he was known for this, you know, very sort of like a Floyd Mayweather figure with whose defense is remarkable and that, uh, um, that the, he would just be untouchable. So ancient boxing didn't generate revenue in the same way that modern boxing generates huge amounts of money, but it did generate a different kind of capital, social and political revenue, building and developing the empire. But overall, boxing had played an important role in generating political clout and capital for sponsors, and they gave sponsors a degree of status and social control, a point that we'll come back to later in this series. With violence, or in this case, boxing, people want to feel exhilarated, but not necessarily be involved in the action themselves. That hasn't changed. Gladiators were slaves with no power and were completely at the mercy of the state, but at the same time, they were immensely popular as celebrities. What also hasn't changed is that there is always someone who is ready to exploit that and gain from it, financially or otherwise. The commodification of the sport, using the athlete's body for other people's gain. Boxing has always been connected to power. It gave legitimacy and prestige to states and provided stature for the elites and emperors. And hey, we see it today. Politicians cozying up to boxers for political gain. Something else we'll return to later in the series. In episode two, we continue our investigation into the heart of boxing, starting with the brutal slave trade of the United States and the unlikely part it played in the creation of the first British black sports celebrity. What's kind of remarkable is that he is, he's a black man in England in a time where racism isn't just the norm, like slavery is under, underpinned by law still. But he slowly starts to be accepted. He's known as Richmond the Black, 
which is sort of an acceptance and actually starts to become how people know him when they start to know him by name. He becomes a celebrity. I wrote a book a couple of years ago about the history of celebrity because of Bill Richmond. He was the, you know, was the first black sports celebrity in British history. Physical Capital is hosted by me, James Deacon. And me, Renee Richardson. It was written by me, James, and Tyre Papula. And it was produced by me as well. Our researcher is Arissa Lumba, production assistant, Rory Boyle, and our sound engineer is Ben Yellowitz. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>